Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. On the internet. And I really fell in love with this preacher. He had an engaging preaching style. He was a seminary professor at a seminary up in the Pacific Northwest. And, and it was, I was so impacted by him. I went out and bought his book, and he has this excellent book on preaching. And then I invited him to come preach here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And so he did. He came in 2009. He preached a weekend conference here. At Emmanuel, he met with us as elders. We were blessed by his preaching. And then we developed a friendship. And then a couple of years later, I invited him to come preach at the Colorado Baptist Convention. And so he was my go-to pastor. I couldn't wait till Monday when his sermons from the past Sunday would come online that I would listen to him. He was the pastor that kind of fed my soul. The kind of pastors, we need to hear other people preaching. Well, then on July 3rd, 2018, when I was going to one of my websites I normally go to to check out things in evangelical Christianity, it hit me like a punch in the gut. The man that I admired, who had preached in our church, was fired from his church by his elders for adultery. I couldn't believe what I read. I thought it was a hit piece. So I immediately reached out to him and texted him and said, is this true? And he confessed. He had an affair with the wife of another pastor down the street, the Presbyterian pastor. This woman was also one of his seminary students. And in 2021, this woman came out and wrote an article sharing about how for years this man had groomed her, had manipulated her, had used his position in power to basically seduce her. And this was not the first time he had done this. This was not his first extramarital affair. It was a pattern of intentional seduction and manipulation for years. And then just recently, I was listening to a podcast that I normally listen to, and one of his associate pastors that he was mentored by back during that time shared on this podcast about how this pastor was insulated from other elders. He was very authoritarian. He did not hold himself accountable, and then he did a great job of hiding his sins. So, needless to say, I was devastated at the fall of this man. You hear about pastors falling all the time, but when it's somebody that you know and somebody that's preached in your church, and many of you remember him and have bought his book and, have, and know what I'm talking about. And so I learned two things from that experience. Number one, don't ever idolize a pastor and put him on a pedestal because he can fall just like the best of us can. Number two, lesson, Sean, that could easily be you if you're not careful and you don't surround yourself with elders to hold you accountable and you need to protect your heart. So why do I bring up this man's fall from ministry? Well, it shows us the importance of holding to the Bible's teaching on the qualifications of spiritual leaders, namely the elders who spiritually lead the church. What are the roles and responsibilities of those God has entrusted to lead his church? 
Now, we took a break from 1 Timothy last week, but over the past few weeks in 1 Timothy, we've been talking about the roles of men and women in the church. And we get to chapter 3, and Paul is going to lay forth for us the qualifications, the functions of the leaders of the church. First, he's going to deal with the elders, and then he's going to deal with deacons. So today, we're going to look at elders. And so let's read together 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. So I want us to ask four questions of this passage of Scripture this morning that talk about the role of the elder slash pastor slash overseer. And here's the first question. What is the office of a pastor hyphen elder? And I'll tell you while I'm using why I use pastor hyphen elder. What, what is the role? What is the office here? Well, the word that Paul uses here is overseer. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer. Now, this is an official office in the life of the church. It's the office of the overseer. And so when you go back and you read your New Testament, there are three interchangeable words for the one office. You've got pastor, you've got overseer, and you've got elder. Those are used interchangeably to talk about the one office. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, Paul writes this. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, it says apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, I don't want to bore you with the Greek text, but really, if you study the Greek, it really should be pastors hyphen teachers. There should be a hyphen in there. The pastor hyphen teacher. The pastor teacher. So that's the first word that's used for this office. The office of the pastor teacher. That's the one we're probably most familiar with. The pastor. But yet there are two other words that are used for the same office. Paul uses the word overseer here in 1 Timothy. But in the book of Acts, the same church that Paul is writing to Timothy, who's the pastor of Ephesus, in Ephesians, the, 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 the church in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, Paul gathers the leaders of the church. And he gives them a farewell address. And I want you to notice how Paul addresses these leaders. In Acts 20 verse 17, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. The elders. Okay, so he calls them elders. And then later on in that same passage, notice what he also addresses them as. Acts twenty twenty eight. Pay, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It's the same word used here in Paul 
in 1 Timothy 3. So you've got elders, overseers, to care for. That's the verbal form of pastor, to pastor as a verb, to care for, to shepherd the church of God. So there are three nouns for the same office. The pastor-teacher, the overseer, and the elder. It all describes the one office. John MacArthur says it this way. He gives a great explanation. John MacArthur says there are three New Testament terms used interchangeably to refer to these men. Elder, overseer, and pastor. And I like the way he kind of qualifies and gives a little bit more explanation. John MacArthur says, Elder emphasizes the man's spiritual maturity necessary for ministry. The overseer states the general responsibility of guardianship. And pastor expresses the priority of feeding or teaching the truth of God's word. Now, this may be confusing to use the word pastor and elder interchangeably. What do you guys call me? You call me Pastor Sean. You don't call me Elder Sean. You call me Pastor Sean. But you call our elders elders. You don't call them Pastor Mickey or Pastor Dwayne. You call them elders. So I think it would be helpful maybe to change our terminology. Okay? Maybe put a hyphen in there. So pastor slash elders. So when we talk about the elders, they are pastors. When they talk about Pastor Sean, I'm an elder. So we're all the same thing. It's the one office. And in addition to that being one office, one man holding that office, the Bible does speak of a plurality of elders in a local church, meaning there's more than one. There is a group of men appointed to lead. So Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders, plural, for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Titus 1, 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town that I directed you. So a church should be led by a plurality of elders, not a solo pastor, not a one-man show, but a group of men who serve the function of elders. Now, churches can go to two extremes that are very unhealthy when it comes to pastoral leadership. Extreme number one is to have the very charismatic, very gifted solo pastor that does everything. He runs the show. He's the solo pastor. And sometimes he can even become dictatorial. It's his way or the highway. He is the only leader, the pastor. That's one extreme. The other extreme is to say, well, there's real no authority structure in the church. There's really no recognizable elders. And so it's just kind of a free-for-all. Everybody can do what they kind of want to do because there is no authority. There is no leadership. And so it's just kind of like totally democratic where everybody just does whatever they want to do without any type of structure. And so the Bible calls for a plurality of elders, and that's the way we've structured Emmanuel. So I am Pastor Sean, Pastor Dustin, and we have four elders. We serve as the overseers, the pastors, the leaders that are qualified for leading this church. So that's the office, the office of elder, the office of pastor, the office of overseer. It's all the one office. Okay, question number two. What does it mean to aspire to pastoral ministry? To aspire. Notice what Paul says there. The saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of the elder. Aspires. Well, it it, it really means, if you look at the actual original language, it means to reach for or to long for or to desire deeply. But it's a sober, measured 
concentrated longing. It's in the present tense in the Greek text, which tells you something. Because it's in the present tense, it means that this is an ongoing, continual yearning. It's a desire. It's a longing. It's not a flippant thing. It doesn't come and go. It's not really based upon excitement, but it's a slow, measured, constant, level-headed desire or calling to be a pastor. Now, a young man may feel called to be a pastor. He may even feel a liver in his shiver, feeling like God's doing something. But he may not be called unless he's confirmed or called by the congregation. He may have the calling but not the experience or the maturity or the ability or recognition. And so sometimes you can be self-called. I'm a self-called pastor because I want a cush job. You know what the pastor's joke is? to their secretaries, I'm going to go visit the Greens. Okay, I'm going to go visit the Greens. What does that mean? I'm going to go golfing. Or I'm going to go visit the Couch family. Not Ray and Karen Couch. I'm going to go take a nap. On the, you know. So there's, there's this whole thing where like pastoral ministry, you can hide out and be lazy. And so some guys go into pastoral ministry because they think it's going to be easy. It's going to be a cush job. I can tell people what to do. I can stand up and talk to people. I can control people. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, I always see many who want to seize the office of elder because they're looking for glory. They're looking for glory. 1 Peter 5, 2-3 is a parallel passage. It's Peter's way of telling us the same thing that Paul tells us here. Shepherd, there's that verb there, shepherd, pastor, the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight as an overseer, not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You are not a self-appointed pastor. You're called by God, and you're called by the church. Back to that passage earlier in Acts 20, 28. I know we just looked at it, but I want you to look at it again. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for. Or shepherd the church of God. The Holy Spirit makes us pastors, elders. So it is an internal call, aspiration, longing, desire, sober, measured, long, where the Holy Spirit calls you to that office internally, but there's also the external calling of the congregation affirming that, seeing that, coming alongside and saying, yes, you have the internal call. We also affirm that you have that calling, and we're coming around you, and we're recognizing it. And so this means practically this. I will say this to some young men in here. If you feel called to pastoral ministry, you cannot shake it. You can't escape it. If it's a true calling from God, it's a burning passion. It's a continual longing. And this is the way I say it. God is the holy hound of heaven, and he will hunt you down until he gets you. If you're called, God will hunt you down until you surrender. He won't let you get out of it. Charles Spurgeon said this. He gave this advice to young men called to ministry. He said, quote, There must be an irresistible, overwhelming craving and raging thirst for telling others what God has done to our own souls. You have this raging, craving thirst to tell people about Jesus, and you can't shake it. God has called you. So that's what it means to aspire 
to the office of a pastor. It's this irresistible, solid, continuous calling of God upon your life where you just can't shake it. And then the congregation comes along and they confirm that and they see that in you. And so you're called internally by God and you're called externally by the congregation and they confirm that internal calling. But we need to be careful here. Just because somebody feels called to ministry may not mean they meet the qualifications for ministry, the character qualifications. So we're going to spend a lot of time on question number three, and that is this. What are the character qualifications for the pastor slash elder? What are the qualifications? I want you to notice very carefully what Paul says there. Look at verse 2. Therefore, an overseer, remember that means pastor, elder, overseer, must be, must. In other words, these are non-negotiable character qualifications. They must be there. Now, before I stress out our elders, this does not mean we have to be perfect. God does not call elders to perfection because nobody can be perfect. But these have to be consistent. These have to be consistent in the life of an elder. Now, most of these qualities, if you look at these qualities, these should be qualities you as everyday Christians should have as well. So there's nothing here that a normal Christian shouldn't have, but there's a higher standard held to the office of an elder. And so before we look at these requirements, I want you just to turn over two books to the book of Titus. I want to show you how Paul shares the same thing. So just turn over real quick. Skip 2 Timothy Go to Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. He repeats this. So we have it twice. So if you have this twice, these are the character qualifications for your elder slash pastors that lead this church. So Titus uh, chapter 1, verse 5. That is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Very similar list to what we see here in 1 Timothy 3. Now, I debated on how to preach this. I could go down every character qualification, but what I, what I noticed as I was looking at this is I think there are five significant areas where these things can be summarized into five big categories when we think about the character qualifications of an elder, of a pastor. So what are these five? Okay, here's the first. He must be a man of spiritual integrity. A man of spiritual integrity. Notice what Paul says there in verse 2, the very first thing out of the chute. An overseer must be above reproach. That word means not to be taken hold of. In other words, nobody can come and bring an accusation against this man that he's done something wrong. He's above reproach. He's a man of integrity. He's also sober-minded. That means he's not impulsive. He doesn't have a chaotic life. He's not given to rashness. He's not giving to indecision. He's not impulsive. He's also self-controlled. He uses good judgment. He's sensible. 
Now, why is it important for elders to be men that are under sound mind and are slow moving and are not rash and are not impulsive? Why do you think that's important? Because we are making major decisions for the life of a church. We need to be able to make wise decisions that not only affect us personally, but the entire church. We need to deliberate and think through issues related to the life of the church. So we need to be thoughtful and and prayerful. And then it also says they're respectable. Literally, it's an interesting word. It means a life that adorns the gospel. A life that puts the gospel on display. You are living out the glory of the gospel outwardly. You're not indecent, you're not crass, but your life just displays the gospel. Okay, not a lover of money. There's model generosity and financial stewardship. They're not consumed with materialism. 1 Timothy 6, 9-10, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and in many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. And why should the elders be financially integrity, men of financial integrity? Because we're also helping make decisions about the budget and how the church spends money. We oversee the church's financial matters. So first is he must be a man of spiritual integrity. Second big category character qualification is he must be a man of relational unity. Relational unity. Notice there it says he must be hospitable. He has a genuine love for all types of people. He's not prejudiced. He's willing to open his home. He's he's willing to be generous. He's willing to use his resources to love and accept and serve all kinds of people. 1 Peter 4.9 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Don't you like those verses that always add that little, without grumbling? Show hospitality, all right, without grumbling. Galatians 6.10, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Elders are to be hospitable, to do good. And then not given to drunkenness, not addicted to alcohol, not addicted to wine, not addicted to drink, not violent. Now, this probably doesn't mean that the elder's ready to go blows with somebody out in the parking lot, although... I've heard of elders getting in fights before. Um, this is really where the elder's not aggressive. He's not a bully. Um, he doesn't like to fight verbally. He's, he doesn't like to browbeat or um, shame other people. He, he's, not a, he's not like an aggressive fighter, either physically or with his words. He's gentle. He's fair-minded. He's kind. Now, this doesn't mean that elders are passive doormats that never deal with controversy. I can attest to you, and the elders can attest to you, we've had to deal with some controversy behind the scenes where we've had to have some hard conversations. Elders also have to rebuke those who are in sin and confront false doctrine. So just because we're gentle and that we're kind doesn't mean that we're also not firm at times and need to refute error when necessary. Not quarrelsome. Scottish theologian Patrick Fairbairn has said this, There's but one safeguard against the evil. The possession of what may be called sanctified common sense. And for this, the godly elders should earnestly strive and pray. Elders should have sanctified common sense in their relationships with others. So a man of spiritual integrity, a man of relational unity, but number three, 
he must lead his wife and children faithfully. He is to be the husband of one wife. Now this here tells us that only an elder can be a male. We talked about that a few weeks ago in the context of what we saw in 1 Timothy, that a woman can't preach or have authority. And so only a man can be an elder, and he has to be a man of godly faithfulness to his wife, a one-woman man. He must have an exemplary marriage, not a perfect marriage, but an exemplary marriage. He can't be an adulterer. He can't be a fornicator. He can't be someone who's sexually immoral, but he has an exemplary marriage where he loves his wife the way that Christ loved the church. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He must love his wife sacrificially, and he must be able to manage his own household well. He needs to be a good father. Now, again, not a perfect father, but he has to be a good father who can love and lead his children well. He disciplines them with godly firmness, but he also loves them. Ephesians 6, 4. Finally, I mean, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, this means practically that an elder or a pastor's child should not be unruly or flagrantly rebellious or immoral while under the roof. Okay, I think there's a statute of limitations. Once they're out of your house, I don't know if you're responsible for them anymore, but while they're still under your roof, you need to discipline them. And um, the point is, if you can't keep your own family under check and you can't guide your own family, how are you going to be able to direct God's family if you can't take care of business in your own house? Back in 2011, I invited Vody Bauckham, many of you know who Vody is, to, to preach at the Colorado Convention. And um, he was preaching, and then we had a question and answer time afterwards where I kind of led a panel discussion with him. And this one pastor stood up in the audience and said, I got a question for you, Pastor Vody. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor of this church on the western slope of Colorado, and my daughter got pregnant, and she's living with her boyfriend, and she's 16, and my 17-year-old son strung out on drugs, and I just don't understand it, but my, my elders came to me and said that I need to voluntarily step down from pastoral ministry. Were they right to tell me to do that? Because I think it was unfair and it was wrong for them. How dare they do that? And Vody Bakken, being Vody Bakken, says hey, they, did the, they did exactly the right thing. They are showing love for you by telling you to step down because you're not in control of your family. And the guy got defensive. He started arguing. He started getting defensive with Vody Bauckham right there in the middle of this panel discussion. And as we're driving back to the hotel, I was talking with Vody, and he's like, that guy does not understand pastoral ministry. He was thinking it was unfair for his elders to try to remove him. They were doing it as an act of love because he needed to take care of his family. His family's falling apart. How in the world is he going to be able to lead the church if his family's falling apart? So, number one, a man of spiritual integrity. Number two, a man of relational unity. Number three, a man of marriage and, and, and family fidelity or faithfulness. But then fourth, he must have maturity, wisdom, and experience walking with the Lord. Now, where do I get that? Why does he need to have maturity and experience? Look at verse 6. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That word recent conflict means newly planted, like, like, a, like sprouting up from the ground. We need to be careful who we put in positions of ministry. 
We need to have time to observe their life, their family, their character, their doctrine. Because they are easily, young men especially, can be puffed up with conceit. That word puffed up means clouded with smoke. They can, they can get their vision impaired. Young men especially are prone to want to pursue ministry out of a desire to prove themselves or to be prideful or to be puffed up. And they can be succumbing to the, the, the whims of the devil. They can be arrogant, think they have all the answers. Now, this happened at my former church. We had deacons at that church, not elders, but we had the, the same rule that we have here at Emmanuel, that if you're going to be in spiritual leadership, you've got to be a member for a year. And why do you have to be a member for a year to be an elder or a deacon? It's so that we can watch your life. We can observe your doctrine. We can see how, make sure you're not a fake, that you're not, you're not fooling us. Now, obviously, that's a, it's a random time. It's not biblical to have one year. But that was the, that was the rule that we had at my former church. You, you had a year. Well, there was this guy that moved in, and he was very charismatic, and he was very articulate, and he was very educated, and, and he wanted to be a deacon. And so um, the rule was you had to be a member for a year. Well, he had only been a member for six months, and some of the deacons wanted to break the rule. I was just a youth pastor at the time, and I thought, this is not a good idea. But I didn't have a lot of clout back then. I just stood back and bit my lip, bit my tongue. Well, they made the exception. Let's go ahead and install him as a deacon after six months. Well, immediately when he became a deacon, he began to try to push the pastor out, to go against the pastor. He became, like, he flipped a switch. He became very divisive, very, very, um, basically just tried to undermine the authority of the leadership structure. And basically, we had to ask him to step down, and they left the church. But we made the exception because we didn't look long enough to see. Now, he wasn't necessarily a recent convert, but there's a time period that Paul says here to make sure that that person is proved, proved out. So having ministry gifts does not automatically mean you're ready for ministry. Being called does not mean you're automatically ready. There needs to be some growth in godliness and character and fruit seen in your life. And that needs to be celebrated and affirmed by the congregation. Okay, what's the fifth big ticket item underneath this character qualification? A man of spiritual integrity, a man of relational unity, a man of marital and, and family fidelity. He can't be a, a recent convert. He's got to have maturity and wisdom. Okay, here's number five. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. And you see that in verse seven. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders well thought of by outsiders. Really, that word is witness in the original language. He needs to have a good witness. Does he have a positive witness in the community? Does he have a positive witness in his business dealings? Is he a good, positive testimony in the community? Would anybody in the community bring a charge against him where he would bring disgrace upon his family or the church? So, we've asked the first three questions. What's the office of the pastor-elder? What does it mean to aspire to this office? What are the qualifications? Okay, let's ask the fourth question. What are the primary tasks of a pastor elder? Most of here that we see here in verses 1 through 7 are character qualifications. But there are two tasks, two verbs, two functions. Number one, and I skipped over it, but you'll see it, Go back to the very end of verse 2. He must be able to teach. Literally skillful in teaching. Now this doesn't mean that the elder has to preach every Sunday in front of the congregation. 
but it does mean that he has to be able to teach God's word. He needs to be able to communicate God's truth and refute error. 2 Timothy 2, 24-25, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And then we saw this earlier. Titus 1, 9, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So number one, a, a pastor slash elder has to be skillful in teaching. That's not a qualification for deacons, as we'll see next week. That's only a qualification for the elder, the pastor, the overseer, to be able to teach. Now, here's the second task. He must be able to lead. That's what it means to oversee, to lead or to manage the church. Notice what Paul says in relation to household. You see that there in verse 5. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, that word manage there is Paul's favorite word for leadership. It's used all throughout Paul's writings to talk about pastoral leadership. If he doesn't know how to lead his family, you'd think Paul would use the same word there, but he uses a different Greek word. If someone does not know how to manage or lead his family, how will he care for God's church? Notice how he used two words there, manage and care. Paul does that purposely to show the, the manner in which a, a, an elder leads. He leads with compassion. He leads as a shepherd. You know, the only other place that word care shows up in the Bible? It's in Luke's gospel talking about the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, the Good Samaritan brought the beaten man to the inn to take care of him. So how do... Elders lead. They lead through shepherding and caring and loving. So an elder functions a lot like a compassionate father to the church family. He loves his people deeply, but sometimes he must make unpopular decisions, and he may do things that you don't necessarily agree with, and he may have to show tough love, but he's doing that because he deeply loves you and cares for you and wants you to grow in Christ. So let's recap. What's the office of an elder? An elder is a godly man, and only a man, called by God, aspired to the, to the ministry. He's also called by the congregation to shepherd the church, to lead the church, to teach the church. It's not a solo pastor, but a plurality of elders that share that leadership. And there's a high standard to meet for the qualifications. Personal integrity, marital fidelity, healthy relationships, not a new convert, mature, wise, controlled. All right. Now, what are the practical applications for Emmanuel when we think about elders? What, is, what does a plurality of elders mean here at Emmanuel? That's the text. Let me give you some things I've thought about over the past couple of weeks of how this plays itself out practically in the life of our church. Here's the first. A plurality of elders safeguards against rash decisions or an unwise agenda pushed by the lead pastor. Me. Okay. We don't move forward as elders unless we have a consensus. There's been times where we've disagreed 
There's times where we've had to pray more about it. There's times I've come in and said, hey, this is going to fly. And the other's like, slow down, Pastor Sean. That's, that's a good idea, but that's not going to fly. Let's wait. Let's pray. Steer me in a better direction. You see, a solo pastor moves quickly and makes all the decisions and things get done. But it may not be the right decision. A plurality of elders may mean things move slower, but moving slower is more healthy because it means that there's prayerful consideration. And it's not just, hey, we're rubber stamping Pastor Sean's. I can tell you, these guys don't rubber stamp Pastor Sean's agenda. Oftentimes, we come together and we pray and we move together with consensus. So that's number one. Number two, elders provide long-term stability to the church. I was thinking about this. I've been here for 18 years. Glenn has been in spiritual leadership at Emmanuel I think I counted almost over 40 years. Mickey has served as an elder over 21 years. Russell has served for 13 years. Dwayne's our newest elder, but he was part of Emmanuel back in the 90s when he was in college, so he's been around our church. And Pastor Dustin's brand new, but we're glad he's here. And so we want to serve you for a long time. And so hopefully our longevity as elders provides a level of comfort and reliability and trust. We hope that you trust us and that there's this stability in the life of our church. And so I'm thankful for these men. We've made some hard decisions over the years. We've been prayerful. Uh, It's not been easy over the years. I, I have pastor friends that don't have this. This is the exception to the rule, to have long-term, healthy, godly elders at one church for a long time. It's the exception, not the rule. I've got pastor friends that churches have blown up because of bad leadership and things that don't go well. So we are blessed here to have godly men that provide stability long term. Okay, third, having multiple elders enables me to devote myself to the priority of preaching. Now, I'm considered kind of the lead pastor, the lead elder. That means I'm the paid guy, the primary mouthpiece that preaches. But we're all equal as elders, but what What having a plurality means is that I can be freed up to focus on what God has gifted me in doing, and that is leading and preaching, and the elders serve alongside me. And I'm so thankful, even today, Pastor Dustin's going to come up and lead our communion time because I've done enough already today between leading worship and preaching. And so I'm so thankful that Dustin has come along. So we have shared ministry to be able to focus on our giftings. Number four. Elders, you may not want to hear this, so this is more for us, okay? Elders will have to give an account of how we led this church. Where do you get that, Pastor Sean? Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We will stand before God on that final day and give an account for how we led this church. That is sobering, and we need your prayers. And here's number five. Satan works overtime to attack the elders of the church. Did you catch the last two verses? The word devil is mentioned twice. Did you see it? Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. 
Verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into the snare of the devil. The devil is mentioned twice. Satan's goal is to destroy the church. And why will Satan want to destroy this church? I can tell you why Satan will want to destroy this church. It's because we stand on the truth, and Satan hates the truth. We have godly elders, and Satan hates godly elders. We are committed to God's gospel and to discipleship, and to seeing God do an amazing thing. And Satan hates that. And so what's Satan going to do? He's going to attack the leaders. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And who's he going to come at first? He's going to come at me first. He's going to come at Dustin. And then he's going to come at our other elders. That's how Satan works to destroy churches, is through leadership. So it's crucial that you pray for us as your leaders. Because as elders, we desperately need God's grace. We are in need of the chief elder's grace. I've said this many times. I'm not the senior pastor of Emmanuel. Who's the senior pastor of Emmanuel? Jesus. Jesus is a senior pastor. And, and Dustin read it earlier. Listen to it again. First Peter 2.25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Notice how Jesus is called the same language that Paul has used to describe the office of an overseer. He's the shepherd, the pastor, and he's the overseer of what? Your souls. Jesus is the chief shepherd. Jesus is the senior pastor. He's the one that looks over all of our souls. So here's our primary job as elders. Our job as elders is this. It's very simple. We personally keep our eyes on Jesus, the senior pastor, and we lead you to do the same thing. We are all to keep our eyes on Jesus and submit to him as the senior pastor of Emmanuel. Because think about this. Who's the true elder of elders? Jesus. Who's the greatest overseer of our souls? Jesus. Who's the ultimate pastor? Jesus. So would you pray for us as elders as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus? And would you pray for us as we lead you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus? And would we never forget that Jesus is our senior pastor. He's the shepherd. He's the overseer of our souls and we all need his grace and his power in his protection. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Dustin, who's going to come and lead us through a time of taking the Lord's Supper together.